This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, there are an awful lot of bad books published, an awful lot of new publishing stars emerge to the point where many of us, in fact, don't bother buying novels anymore, which makes it an even greater pleasure, therefore, to welcome to the stand with me here in the studio, the first person since the beginning of COVID, one of the really great British novelists, Robert Harris. He has written so many wonderful books, and his latest book is called Act of Oblivion, It's set after the death of Cromwell. There was an act of oblivion, and it was enacted to punish those who had murdered the king. King Charles I. Robert, thank you very much for joining us on The Stand, and it's a real pleasure to have you. You're the first person to be in this studio with me since COVID. I'm honoured, Eamon. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. The... Review in the Sunday Times of, of your book says, you know, that it is the best book you've written since Fatherland, which was your first novel published, I think, in 1992. And in Fatherland, and this is characteristic of the work you've done all through your career as a writer, you wrote a book posited on the idea that the Nazis had won the Second World War and were cohabiting with the British in the 1960s, which is a, a totally fascinating prospect. It was a great success. Did that liberate you finally from your journalism, which was very successful? Yes, it did. Um, um, I was um, 34, I think, when I finished Fatherland, and it was bought uh, uh, by Random House in America after an auction and uh, I'd been a journalist, therefore, for uh, 13 years, either at the BBC or in newspapers. Uh, and I was paid more by them than I'd earned in all my life put together up to that point. So it certainly did liberate me. And uh, it was glorious, actually. The first paragraph of fiction that I ever wrote was the first paragraph of Fatherland. And uh, it was so exciting. I, I, I had to go and lie down afterwards. I just thought, 
I'm making this up. It yes. was just such a f- thrilling, liberating feeling. So it liberated me in all sorts of ways, actually. Yes, and you've you've written historical thrillers, I think they could be called, and p- particularly Act of Oblivion, because it's a manhunt, effectively, and the two men being hunted are Edward Wally, who was, in fact, Cromwell's cousin, and William Goff. They take off to America, and they are being hunted. I want to ask you about your ideas for the novels you write. And one of the suggestions made by one of your admiring critics is the precariousness of civilization has long been one of Robert Harris's themes. He has said that he is, and I quote, haunted by the idea that what we take for granted could so easily fall apart. And that seems in the present geopolitical situation with the behavior of Putin, with the collapse of, it seems, the British political system almost, and the worries that we have about the European Union, does the contemporary world you're looking at reinforce your sense that a lot of what we take for granted is rather fragile? It does, yes. Um, I think in particular the uh, three uh, Roman novels that I wrote about Cicero really chart um, uh, the end of the Roman Republic. Uh, The novel spanned 25 years, and at the beginning, the Roman Republic has lasted for centuries, three or four centuries, and there is just an assumption it will always go on with the annual elections, the sharing of power, and the rest of it. Um, But it all starts to slide, and... um, that book, in a curious way, those books um, um, are kind of come true in, in an alarming, yes. in an alarming sense. That I could never have thought when I started in two thousand and six um, that that would happen. In particular, only when I finished the trilogy, which I think was twenty thirteen, um, did I fi- did I realize that um, you know the. Um, the, what the books were really about were was uh, were about unscrupulous billionaires, the yes. equivalent of in that time, uh, whipping up uh, populist resentment and fury against an elite of which they were themselves the members. Yes, uh, and that uh, I think is a pattern which we've seen repeated, whether it be Trump or Johnson or or whoever across Europe. Berlusconi? Yes. Springs yes. to mind. Uh, you, and you, you, you undermine the legitimacy of, of the election, so you make people doubt their own society where they live. And they, so, uh, you, you know, you create a kind of alternative reality. And really that was what Caesar and, and the others did in ancient Rome. And uh, you see it being repeated now everywhere. Now, Act of Oblivion, first of all, there was an act passed. This is not dreamt up. This wonderful mixture of character, fiction, and fact is what makes your work so readable and so attractive. There was an Act of Oblivion. Britain was a a republic for 13 years or something around that. 11 years. 11 years, yeah. The king was killed, was murdered, and... These two wanted men took off and went to America. They were Puritans, correct? Yes, absolutely. One of them very strict indeed. Yeah, and 
in America today, we have the evangelicals who are strong supporters of Donald Trump's. They are also strong supporters of Israel. And they are really quite a serious proposition. They may cause trouble in the future. But what I want to do is establish the link between active oblivion and the thrilling chase or manhunt and this present time. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the um, uh, it's, it's something that really came out to me as I was writing the book, that the DNA of modern America is forged in these tight-knit, pure, tiny Puritan communities uh, who um, have thrown off or, 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 or object to the rule of the king, um, and they are uh, very independent-minded, and they have... Uh, they are very strict. They're rather repressive. Uh, they don't like music. Uh, they don't like drinking. They don't like all the things that uh, you know one associates with cavaliers. Um, and they are—they want to impose their views on everybody. Yes. And um, not only that, but the um, religious right support Israel, as you say, because they regard it as the arbinger of the second coming. Uh, and that is exactly what uh, the characters in my book, they really did think that in 1666, you know, Christ would return to earth and there would be the rule of the saints. And they still think that it's coming, the rapture. And if you look at the American Supreme Court right now, there are a couple of justices, Trump nominated three, who are not a million miles away from that camp. Now, the novelist part of you, the fiction and imaginative part of your work, you invent a character who pursues the two guys who go to America. Tell me about the invention of that character. And, and the name of the character, Richard Naylor. Well, yes. The when I came across this, the the story of this manhunt, which went on for so many years, and and they were hunting. You know, there were fifty nine signatures of the death warrant of Charles the First, and there were more than a hundred judges. And if you were in either category, and most of them were did both, um, and a lot of them were still alive, maybe fifteen or twenty had died, but most of them were still around. Um, then, you know, you had to surrender yourself, uh, which was proved to be a bad mistake, incidentally, as you didn't get any mercy, uh, or you ran. And uh, they, they ran to Holland, they ran to Switzerland, they ran to Germany, and these two that I follow, Wally and Goff, they run to America. And it was a great story, but what I realized was missing in this manhunt was a manhunter. Yes. I mean, how did, this, how did they do this? I mean, they opened the mail, they closed the ports, they uh, tracked them down, they interrogated the ones they picked up. It was a big intelligence police operation, if you like, yes. when the time there was no police. So I've thought about it. I studied the dry details of government of Stuart and Cromwell in England, and it it was clear that this would be operated by the Privy Council, probably with a subcommittee, a regicide committee, and whoever was the secretary of that would probably be the person who pulls everything together. So I invented Richard Naylor, secretary to the regicide committee, and that meant that I knew where he worked, in Whitehall Palace. Uh, I imagined him as being uh, uh, someone who was on the kind of staff of the Marquis of Hartford, who lived on, on the Strand, so I knew where he walked to work. And so on. once I get all that, I begin to feel I'm in that era. And he's a rather shadowy figure who moves in the, 
He operates in the shadows. He operates in the shadows. I have a figure from New Labour in my mind, (laughs) (laughs) which I know, of course, you were very, you were friendly with uh, um, with Tony Blair, of course, um, and um, I... I won't mention the name. However, <laughs> I think everyone can guess who you mean. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's kind of shimmying down corridors and but, uh, uh, somehow coming out ahead of you in a revolving door they've entered after you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but the, the point I'm trying to get to is how much of your fiction and of your characters do you draw from observation of people that you might have encountered? Because there's a wonderful symmetry in your book between past and present. If there's a, a theme, it is, and I say it again, don't think that Cromwell or some historical figure isn't around today and that the circumstances of our own implosion and, and tragedy are far away. We're still dealing with the same pe- well, thing, the human condition. Yes, exactly. I mean, of course, um, f- f- the, the absolute dominance of religion, say, in the 17th century, the fact that... Um, uh, God was e- ever present and and was um, a, a hugely live issue and explained the world to you in a way that it doesn't now. I mean, clearly, um, the, um, um, the, the whole mindset was different and it was different in the Roman era well, uh, um, the, uh, the same. However, um, putting that to one side, which I think you can put to one side, there's no doubt when you read, say, the letters of Cicero or the speeches of Cromwell, you recognise the type, you recognise the impulses, um, and some of them are, you know, there are ambitious people, there are cowardly people, there are noble people, you know, you can see um, the lineaments of modern figures. And and my my, um, stock in trade since I, really since my childhood in a way, or interest, was um, politics and, yes. and the power and who seeks power and how it alters them and how, how in the end you can never hold it. it must, in the end, it's taken away from you. The, the whole cycle of it, the tragedy of it, all of that and the excitement of yes. it, those are my, that's my theme. And so uh, in the end, as Enoch Powell famously remarked, all political careers end, end in failure, failure unless yes. cut off in their midpoint by accident or death. Um, you you fail, and so all my books are in the end about uh, institutions and uh, the fact that ultimately it is always going to end in failure. That, you know, the Roman Republic doesn't exist, the British Empire doesn't exist. You know, these things pass; everything passes. Yes, and that makes many people cynical. That idea that there is nothing to fight for. Look, it all comes to the same thing in the end. I, I'm thinking well, of contemporary British yes. figures. I think immediately of Boris yeah. Johnson, who is a scholar of the Roman era. And what strikes me about Johnson, there are many things that are unattractive, is his deep, I would call it nihilism rather than cynicism. He believes in nothing. Well, I, I think that that's true. Just on your point about whether this is um, is a, a cynical view of, of the world, the, my, one of my favourite quotes is uh, Keynes. Who, who said, uh, I've, I've, been, is, I've been quoted as saying that in the long run, we're all dead. Yeah. But in the short run, we're all very much alive. <laughs> and that, I think, is, is, is crucial. So, you yeah. know, somehow or other, uh, you know, we have to go on and we have, to, uh, we have to carve up this thing that is, for me, always like nuclear power, which is power. Uh, and how do you 
parcel it up in such a way that it does the least amount of damage to people? How do we keep the psychopaths out of power? Yes. I think there was broadly the same percentages of psychopaths, indifferent people, geniuses, fairly decent people. I think that that's almost standard in human nature and has been for hundreds of years. Yeah, and you could argue, I suppose, and I have heard it argued, that a cynic is nothing worse than a failed romantic. <laughs> Have you heard that? I know, that's very good. Um, uh, another one I like is Gore Vidal said that a narcissist is someone who's better looking than you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Gore Vidal also said, every time I see a friend succeed, a little part of me dies. <laughs> yes, I love Gore Vidal. Um, the three saddest words in the English language, <laughs> Joyce Carol Oates. <laughs> 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 now, to go back to this, your latest novel, which I strongly recommend to our listeners, and I know we have so many people who get some such joy and pleasure and peace, actually, from, from reading, and maybe this winter with the blackouts we're promised, reading maybe an alternative to television. The times you're writing about and the characters that you flesh out and this chase is central to the... It's a page-turner. You want to find out. I wanted to find out what happens to Wally and Goff. And also, what Richard Naylor would become of him. And almost all of the people who praise your work talk about your ability to, to create thrillers. It's something that you have to get to the, the end of, a mystery. What's going to happen? How difficult is it, Robert, to work that out yourself? Is, are you a natural? Well, I think that's the thing that I can do. I mean, I think that most writers uh, or artists, um, uh, you know, they have one, they have a strength. And, uh, and um, mine has always been, whether it was in journalism or nonfiction or, or in novels, a story. I mean, just to... I don't know. It just it just fell naturally to me. I can't explain yes. why. Sorry, it's, I shouldn't it, have asked that super question. Well, it just <laughs> it, it does, and you know. So that's so that's it. I wouldn't even dream of embarking on on anything that if it didn't have a good story. One of the great historical questions is there or issues the Dreyfus affair, and you wrote a, a book called The Officer and the Spy, which was also uh, very successful. So your work is rooted. In real, for example, the ghostwriter was said to be about Blair, and as someone who read it, it seemed to be about Blair. Clearly, the act of, of oblivion, your novel that's out now, is about a real event as well. So it's the, f the, the fusion of real events with characters running through them. Yes, I, I mean, I quite often take a minor character um, or invent a minor character, such as uh, Neville Chamberlain's private secretary who flies yes, with him to, to, to meet Hitler in Munich. Uh, I, I like inserting that sort of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern kind yes. of figure uh, into the past um, to bring it alive. I mean, I believe passionately that, um, you know, how we live now is is not suddenly just invented, you know. We we are in a continuum that yes. stretches back a long way, and we're not really free agents because we're guided by. Every nation is shaped by its history, its polit political culture, and its its general artistic culture as well. 
we are all the product of the past. And so um, for me, historical fiction is contemporary fiction. I, I, uh, if, if there's something calls to me, like the chase of these regicides from the past, and I want to write it, it's because somehow, even subliminally, sub subconsciously, it speaks, it speaks to me as something that is interesting now. You know, I mean, all the tens and hundreds of thousands of things that have happened in the past, most of them you wouldn't want to dramatize, but occasionally you come across something you do. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now, one of the most oppressive things is the amount of research you do. And I've heard you interviewed and you talk about, because when you go to history, these great events... You have to research diligently. Do you enjoy the research? I do, yes, very much. And the pleasure of that? Yes, and, uh, you know, I mean, an awful lot of what you do never sees the light of day. I mean, you know, yes, uh, Tom Stoppard has a good phrase pinned up above, above his desk with his, uh, just because it's true doesn't mean it's interesting. Yes. And I think that that's, and every historical novelist should 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 remember that because a lot of things... You know, you may be interested to you that you've discovered it, but the reader isn't going to care. Um, but I, I do. For me, the I never have hired a researcher, never would, because for me, the research is the lived life. Yes, well, that's where I get my experience. I and mean, to take an example with this book, I must be there can be hardly anyone else who read, who has read, uh, or has, I should say, the seven huge volumes of Thurlow's state papers. And Thurlow was Cromwell's private secretary, and he yes. really ran the whole show. And uh, my characters, Wally and Goff, wrote to him. Uh, and, um, you know, when you look at all this massive paper, 
it's um, most of it is no, in fact, none of it really has much relevance to this novel. But I immerse myself in it because a lot of the letters, cipher letters, yes. they, their, their relationships, this wet, dusty webwork of relationships. These centuries ago, you can see it, and uh, it, just reading it informs the texture of the novel. I can't put it any other way than yeah, that. Yeah, no, absolutely, and authenticity is. Again, it's one of the hallmarks of your work, and I think of anyone's work, without a seriousness and a research element in it, it doesn't have, it's not real in a sense. Have we changed much, Robert, as humans? Let's go back to the act of oblivion and the characters and fast forward to the drama we've seen in British politics this week, or the drama we see with Donald Trump and Biden. And many people believe there is a real threat to, the, to American democracy and therefore to the, the Western world if Donald Trump were to get back in 2024. Have we changed much? Or is it the, only the setting? Well, I think that what, obviously the, the huge change um, it has been technology and um, the way that that has... Um, have, um, lengthened life. And, and in one and, of your books, you talk about a post-technological age, yes. which is a disaster. I can't yeah. remember the name of it. The now. Second Sleep. Yes. But, but the, yeah, I mean, essentially the great difference is is technology and science. And, and that has, of course, affected the way, you know, these guys live in a world in which God is a, a given, the existence of God. Yes. You know, once we had science, once we could explain things, once indeed we weren't, you know, almost all the children dying, women dying in childbirth, stillbirth, so on, you no longer needed that kind of comfort and explanation anymore, uh, then, then, you know, that is a huge difference. But J.G. Farrell wrote a very good line in The Siege of Krishnapur we, uh, about the, the tendency of us to feel superior to the past. Yes. Well, actually, what if the past is really superior to us? And I often think about this with relation to Cicero. Um, the speeches were better, the philosophy was better, the poetry was better, and arguably you can say the buildings were better. Yes. Um, you know, uh, what wasn't as good, music wasn't as good, and they didn't have the technology. But otherwise, you know, it was a very sophisticated society in which still shapes us today. And, uh, of course, the internet... And the online stuff I'm just suggesting to you, I find it frightening. I don't know where it's going. Everyone has a voice. Yes. And not everyone who has a voice has a nice no. voice or, or indeed a pleasant view of the world. Yeah, this is the great paradox of the age. Here we are. We carry around in our hands uh, this, we call it a phone, but really it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful computer. And it... Um, uh, we can summon up pretty well all the world's literature, music, paintings, yes. Yes. Uh, in, and have it in the palm of our hand. And you would think this would be mark the triumph of the Enlightenment, instead of which we live in an age of superstition, uh, craziness, um, uh, you know. Massive pornography. Yes. Which I mean, is a, is a, it leaves a terrible mark yeah. on people who consume it to yes. the degree that we know it's consumed. Yeah, and I mean, so I think that, you know, um, um, we live in a curious, uh, very curious and alarming times, and, and Twitter and social media is, is, it does remind me of the Roman Forum um, where uh, the mob, you know, yes. tears the wrong poet, tears the 
poet sinner apart rather than the the politician sinner uh and uh, well okay tough tough luck for you uh uh, and and they sort of uh, you, you know it's it's like the crowd the mob charges this way and that and it's like a senseless beast in a way and you feel that on Twitter you and social media and and it, I think it is reflected in our politics and and without Twitter Trump might not have got where no, he, he got he yes. uh, and it's it's Yahoo a Swiftian kind of Yahoo yes. kind yeah. of yeah. Uh, culture has has developed and it's a time for populism easy slogans trite promises yeah. boosterism it's like living in a great Barnum and Bailey circus isn't it and yeah. uh, with and Boris Johnson and Donald Trump epitomise this age. Yeah, it's uh, just want to ask you a couple of more questions because I'm grateful for the time you've given us, Robert. One of the questions I want to ask you is about the daily work and how you set about writing. The work is superb. Are you a one-time, once it's on the page, I don't revise, or do you sit down, read it again, and revise. I have a very good friend, uh, Colm Tobin, who's a really good friend. <laughs> we were friends when we were both journalists. And he's a, a terrific man for revising, revising, revising. I, I wonder if you are, because I can't look at anything I've written. I do it, and uh, I have written books, and they have been successful. But I couldn't read them again, and I couldn't even revise them. It has to be done at the moment, how yeah. do you how do you work? I'm more or less the same. I'm uh, uh, I get up in the morning. I start work about eight o'clock, uh, and the first thing I do is read over what I wrote the previous day. Right, that gets me back into the tempo and the temperature and the feel of the book. Uh, then I aim to write about another eight hundred words that's new. Right. Then I stop at lunchtime, have a drink, and um, forget about it. And then the next day, uh, the process resumes. Uh, and but beyond that revision the following day I've revised very little um, and because I have a neurotic desire to get it right more or less as I go along and the, those writers who I hear sort of they write a first draft in order to discover the book and yes. then they put it aside and start all over again are you mad? <laughs> I can't even begin to think of doing that. Uh, I think it's because I was a columnist and, you know, you, you had a thousand words or twelve hundred words you had to fill in the paper within about three to four hours and uh, you just had to do it. And it was like being a stand-up comedian in a way. Um, you, you, And also, the best columns, the best writing um, is done where you sit yes. down without an idea in your head because... The adrenaline has taken over, and you're seeing things because of the panic yes. that you wouldn't normally see. So I, I give myself as I have to produce a book in six months because the publishers are waiting for it, yes. and uh, you know that's the way I work. I mean, one day, of course, I'll come a terrible cropper, but for now, uh, that's what I do. No, and you've you've done it superbly again. Act of Oblivion is a book I I would strongly recommend. In fact, Annie book of Roberts. Some of them are quite beautiful and engaging and you can actually, there's a richness about, say, The Officer and Spy. I strongly recommend that. Now, you do not hear books recommended on this podcast generally or indeed authors interviewed for a reason. We are fortunate enough this morning to have spoken to one of the best 
writers of fiction who is alive. His name is Robert Harris. The book is published by Hutchinson Heinemann, and you can get it, and I urge you to. And look at the other books of Robert's that you can get hold of. They're wonderful. Thank you very much, Robert. Thanks, Eamon. It's been a pleasure. We're very, very grateful to Robert Harris, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.